Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends, in the Vatican City of Lutheranism, which is Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, our largest, our largest seminary is magnanimous enough to employ a Presbyterian minister as one of its New Testament professors, associate professor, which to be sure we don't want those Presbyterians getting too uppity on us. His name is Matt Skinner, and he's written several books, one of them on the Acts of the Apostles, and Professor Skinner's work is the basis of this sermon. I'm not telling you that to impress you with my education, but to give him uh, his recognition and credit. But if you are impressed, I won't try to stop you. In our reading from the Acts of the Apostles this morning, the preacher, Paul, is in Athens. Not Athens, Georgia, but the Athens, as in Socrates, as in Plato, as in Sophocles and the Parthenon, the mother city of Western civilization. It was past its prime by the time of Jesus and Paul, but it still had no rival. The influence of Greek civilization can be seen in the fact that although Christianity started among the Jews and grew up in the Roman Empire, the New Testament is written not in Hebrew, nor in Latin, but in Greek, which was the international language of the time. I've been reading this 1,000-page history of Christianity. Now I'm starting to impress you. It's by Dyer Maid McCulloch. I'm on page 361, and I've been reading it for a year. <laughs> I want to read what he says about Christianity on page two. I had to earn a master's degree to learn what I could have learned here on page two. Christianity is creatively caught between Israel and Greece. This book is called Christianity the First 3,000 Years. We like to think that we are 2,000 years old, but that's not the point of this book. Uh, McCulloch writes, Within the cluster of beliefs making up Christian faith is an instability which comes from a twofold ancestry. Far from being simply the pristine, innovative teachings of Jesus Christ, Christianity draws on two much more ancient cultural wellsprings, Greece and Israel. The story must therefore begin more than a millennium before Jesus among the ancient Greeks and the Jews, two races which alike thought that they had a uniquely privileged place in the world's history. The extraordinary cultural achievements in art, philosophy, and science of the ancient Greeks gave them good reason to think this. More surprising is the fact that the Jews' constant experience of misfortune did not kill their faith in their own destiny. Instead, it drove them to conceive of their God not simply as all-powerful, but as passionately concerned with their response to him in anger as well as in love. 
such an intensely personal deity, they began to assert, was nevertheless the God for all humanity. He was very different from the supreme deity who emerged from Greek philosophy in the thought of Plato, all perfect, therefore immune to change and devoid of the passion which denotes change. The first generations of Christians were Jews who lived in a world shaped by Greek elite culture. They had to try to fit together these two irreconcilable visions of God and the results have never been and never can be a stable answer to an unending question. Wow! Did you understand that? I hope you didn't, because it took me all my life to learn it, and I don't think you deserve a shortcut. A lot of the spiritual questions you ask yourself when you are alone, or that we ask in classes and discussions here at church, are due to this internal conflict between Jew and Greek, between Moses and Plato. You've often heard me quote Paul's own words from 1 Corinthians. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul is attempting to say right there that Christ is above both Jewish and Greek concepts. And I'm sure he's right, but the struggle has continued for 2,000 years. So back to our reading. Paul has gone to Athens, the cultural capital of the world, and at the end of the book of Acts, he is in Rome, the political capital of the world. The beginning of Acts starts with these words inscribed over Dove's pulpit when this sanctuary was constructed in 1967, the thesis statement for the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, dot, 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 (laughs) Um, dot, dot, dot. It leaves off, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so here at this important moment in the book of Acts, Paul is carrying out this thesis statement by sharing his witness in the cultural capital of the world. Not for nothing did did I mention Athens, Georgia, Christianity started in Galilee, and within one generation it had reached Los Angeles. And not for nothing did I mention Los Angeles, the second largest American city as a kind of cultural center of the earth. But we also kind of snicker a little bit when we talk about L.A., don't we? And Acts says this about Athens. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. (laughs) That's Luke, the author of Acts, snickering a little bit at Athens, just one verse ahead of our reading this morning, the way you might snicker at Manhattan or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. Madonna is practicing Kabbalah, and Richard Gere is a Buddhist, and Yoko Ono is working for peace in the Middle East, and Bob Barker is working for zoos to give up their elephants, and Cameron Diaz was just named the Queen of Green by Vogue magazine. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Now in speaking to the Greeks, Paul uses two quotations from ancient Greek philosophers. They are set off in quotation marks in your copy of the story. In him we live and move and have our being is probably from Epimenides, a philosopher of the 6th century before Christ. And we are his offspring likely comes from Eratus, a 3rd century poet before Christ. Pastor John Holter, who is away today, thinks it is so funny that many Missouri Synod pastors talk and pray using the phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, which comes from the Bible, but it is actually a pagan quotation. So Paul, being a good preacher, adjusts his message to his audience. He quotes their philosophers. He speaks on their terms. Paul, as we see him here and as we read him in his own letters, Paul is very good at this. He says of himself, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, although I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, although I am not free from God's law but under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I might by any means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessing. That's what Paul says about himself. This is all interesting, Pastor Steve, but what does it have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. Our congregation has to accept the challenge that God has given us. We are in Athens. We are in a culture that is intellectual and scientific or that likes to think that it is intellectual and scientific. A culture that likes to chatter about every new thing. A culture that is skeptical of organized religion, especially Christianity. Our reading says that Paul was in the Areopagus. Sometimes Areopagus is translated into English as Mars Hill, a particular hill in ancient Athens. Mars is the Roman name for the Greek god Ares, as in Areopagus. There are a number of congregations that have taken this story to heart. And if you Google Mars Hill, you'll find a very technically and culturally sophisticated church called Mars Hill Church that is actually a denomination. Their message and teachings are mostly old school fundamentalist, but the presentation is slick and is designed to be relevant. Dove of peace is not ever going to be slick. But we have the distinct advantage of not being old school fundamentalist. We have the distinct advantage of not having a pastor who is nationally famous for predicting the end of the world on a specific day. <laughs> our congregation's vision statement tries to articulate our direction. Our congregation will be a sanctuary for religious refugees, a champion for the oppressed, and a fellowship of inclusivity and authenticity, boldly proclaiming God's grace 
to the world. In the words of the United Church of Christ, Jesus didn't turn people away, neither do we. The United Church of Christ, no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're welcome here. I wish I had thought of that. Our denomination has a full communion relationship with the United Church of Christ and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Methodists. As a family of churches, we are about 10% of American Christianity. But for for who people actually are and where they actually are on life's journey, our 10% is much more engaged with Athens than the other 90%. We have a message that not everyone is going to accept. I wish our reading had gone on for three more verses. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman called Damaris and others with them. Dionysius, whom some of you may may know better by his French name, Saint-Denis. Some will scoff, some will be non-committal, and some will join us. God has challenged us to do our part and to do our best and to leave the rest to him. Our congregation, you and I, only have to accept this challenge so that, as our pulpit says, we may be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Amen.